Welcome to the balance sheet where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. The last few episodes have looked at different aspects of sustainability, whether in industries like electric vehicles or the financial side with ESG measurement, and also how startups can help tackle climate change. Today, we're going to go back up to the 30,000 feet level and ask, how can a region like Europe make an orderly transition to a clean energy future? McKinsey put together a report on this. And today we have first uh, Tommaso Cavina and also Andre Anacleto, who co-authored the report. And if you want to read a report after this episode, I'll leave a link in the show notes. And you can also just click on the QR code, uh, well, zap on the QR code in the upper right-hand corner. We also have Professor David Reiner, faculty here at CJBS and member of the Energy Policy Research Group. So first, welcome Tommaso, Andre, and David. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. So, Tommaso, do you want to start by telling us, I know you're going to talk a lot about later on how Europe has to balance three very difficult objectives, but do you want to start by saying, how did we get to this trilemma? Yes, indeed. Um, I think um, the um, underlining uh, uh, motivation why we came up with, uh, with this uh, uh, piece of research, I think now, uh, the pathway on uh, uh, the the uh, let's say what needs to happen in order to to get uh, to our minus fifty five percent emission reduction is pretty clear. Uh, what we uh, really asked ourselves is now what are the key unlocks uh, uh, in order to to get there and uh, to get there not only at the pace uh, that. Uh, is required uh, to get to those goals by 2030, but also to do it in an orderly fashion. And orderly fashion, uh, we will uh, talk about this uh, uh, later on, but uh, substantially uh, it includes uh, you know, getting there at the lowest possible cost in an affordable way, and also ensuring uh, um, the security of supply, which has been uh, hindered uh, in uh, the recent events during the, the energy crisis. Uh, I'll, I'll pass it over uh, to my colleague Andre to, to give yeah. an... It's worth sure. it. So uh, let me perhaps start kind of uh, where, where we are in the context, right? Because we we are seeing on one hand that the world is facing these unprecedented challenges, right? So we are getting the warmest years, we're getting record high emissions, um, sea levels are dropping um, um, in terms of ice and rising in terms of water levels, um, and more and more there are risks around it. And when we look at the, um, the frequency of, let's say, extreme weather events, which is kind of a, a proxy of how this is affecting us. More and more, we have significant number of uh, 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 one billion plus natural disasters, for example, in the US, with insurance rates going um, higher and also increasing the premiums. Um, and kind of when we look over the last 
100 or 150 years, we actually see that energy has been core um, to the development, right? To the growth and to the um, um, growth as, as, as society and growth as economically uh, speaking of how we uh, develop ourselves and continue to, to, to do more and more um, with the resources that we have. Um, and if you go to, to the next page um, and the next one, sorry, we see that we'll need a massive build out of green energy going forward. We're talking about 30 terawatts, roughly kind of um, seven times today what we have installed and a lot of investment. We're talking uh, on the largest capital deployment and reallocation that we've seen um, since uh, the last 100 years, probably. And however, we're doing this in a period of high volatility. If we go to the next page, we see that we're living in a, in, in a world where prices go up and down. Um, we're living in a world that is, is being affected by geopolitics. It's affected by things like COVID um, that is throwing away um, kind of the some certainty that we have or some security that we had before on the decisions that we do, on the investment decisions, on the personal decisions that we do. Um, and and we, we see that, for example, with, um, with some of the announcements that we see on the media on the next page. Now, when we try to kind of summarize how, what we need um, and kind of how we structure, there are three things. And we're also talking on, on the next page. The energy trilemma revolves around this one on one hand, we want to reduce carbon emissions in line with the decarbonization objectives. A second one, which actually gained a lot of importance over the last 24 months, we see energy security as a critical point um, to ensure that we keep developing ourselves um, and that we keep growing. And a third one around affordability, right? So we need to do this on a path that makes sense economically and that makes sense um, on attracting these large investments that we that we that we need um to give it a bit a bit of color uh, around these three uh, on the next page for example we're talking about changing completely how we supply power today increasing the penetration of renewables uh, scaling the deployment of solar um, and wind onshore and offshore uh, across the globe shutting down and creating impacts on 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 the communities uh, for example, on where coal uh, is being installed and scaling um, a completely yet uh, evolving technology, which is the green H2. Um, H2 today is already quite, a, let's say, a mature one. But when we're talking about green H2, we're still not there yet. And we already have huge um, ambitions set uh, towards the end of the decade. This is on the supply side. On the demand side, we also see a major shift, right? So, sorry, still in the previous page. We still see a major shift. On one hand, increasing demand from electrification that we're seeing more and more on things like EVs, as mentioned in, in the beginning, but also in the industry, right? So with the gas prices that we saw last year, we saw a lot of companies justifying and having a business case on electrifying some of the process. Or... Um, investing in energy efficiency processes that would allow them to uh, be um, spending much less 
on the energy given the spike that they saw with the with the price increase so we have shifts on supply and shifts on demand and this is kind of where we're going with decarbonization when we look at the security of supply not only we have the situation on how how dependent are we on and this on the next page how dependent are we on one source like russia we saw with, with the gas but also on the type of challenges that this creates on the on the on the um, um, what we call firm capacity right so more and more renewables we have less firm capacity we will have and this firm capacity will be critical um if we want to have let's say a stable power system that um doesn't doesn't have blackouts and doesn't let's say destroys a bit the system um given the intermittency that we're seeing more and more renewable so more firm capacity will be needed and on affordability on the next page we've done a, a bit of the math and we we believe that if we done if we do uh, electrification um and if we do this transition properly at the end of the curve we will see um a more efficient and more price uh, affordable uh, energy system um while for example if we continue on a prolonged crisis uh, with geopolitics this might create even a, a, a an increased hurdle but in the context for example of the the eu um the eu doesn't have let's say the, the same natural resources as other countries or other geographies in more and more it's it's almost like a, a security needs to really develop these new ways of energy that are um, leveraging the natural resources that we have uh, in the region. So all in all to say on the next page that although we need uh, an orderly energy transition, what we see is currently a disorderly energy transition. On decarbonization, for example, with increased prices on gas, um, a move to coal, um, given that let's say what was less constrained, the fact that um, inflation hit across across uh, across society, we also saw that increase on rest costs, um, and also driven by supply chain disruptions on raw materials and production capacity. On energy security, the fact that we saw a lot of uh, reduction on on gas imports from from Russia, or the fact that, for example, France had some situation uh, and some challenges with their nuclear uh, fleets that kind of reduced the firm capacity available. And at the same time on affordability, we see this volatility also hurting consumers at the end of the day and creating, um, for example, in some situations, an increase in energy poverty, which um, is not the path that we want to go to. So perhaps back to Tommaso on how are we seeing some of the unlocks um, around this, this disorderly energy transition that we want to make more orderly. Thank you, Andre. Indeed. So let me comment. We see um, six main areas uh, uh, that needs to be tackled and uh, we'll uh, give uh, some insights on uh, where the challenges really are. First, uh, it's about scaling our uh, local uh, supply chains for uh, uh, clean technology. Uh, second, uh, uh, the infrastructure that can uh, that needs to support uh, uh, renewable uh, integrations. Uh, uh, needs uh, needs to be strengthened, and uh, we expect uh, uh, investments to increase uh, exponentially compared to to the um, recent past. Third, um, land uh, needs to be uh, secured for uh, renewable developments, and 
we know that uh, currently there are uh, pretty um, significant constraints on uh, land that can be uh, devoted to, to renewables uh, in particular. Uh, and uh, I think uh, strictly connected with this, the fourth area, it's on permitting. Uh, um, getting uh, uh, re uh, permitting both for uh, renewable technologies such as uh, utility scale solar uh, or wind uh, and also grid infrastructure can take uh, uh, from uh, from two to six years depending on the country and of course this is a ma massive uh, bottleneck uh, to get uh, the technology on the ground that is needed by 2030. An evolving market design, uh, the current one uh, was uh, uh, built uh, uh, in a system which was based on centralized resources, uh, based on, uh, uh, let's say, fuel, with the high fuel cost, uh, renewables are fixed costs, so the system needs uh, uh, to, to evolve. Uh, and uh, the, the Commission has, in, has indeed introduced uh, recently a reform uh, package uh, for, uh, for the market design for Europe. And finally, uh, on downstream technology is uh, uh, introducing uh, the regulatory measures in order to uh, foster uh, the at scale adoption of the technologies uh, and for example uh, um, address uh, the uh, high upfront costs that are needed uh, in the near term for some of these. Maybe David at this point do you have any other sort of uh, what would, any views reactions to this any other unlocks that you think we need to consider? I mean, I, I think one of the, I agree with many of these points. I mean, they are critical, um, but it also explains why it's been so difficult, why it's been disorderly. And, and I guess my question or concern would be how to actually make these things more orderly. I mean, if we think about um, uh, energy infrastructure, um, uh, lots of countries have this problem where the place where you have the, Say the wind or offshore wind places like that are are more remote and pretty far from the demand centers and so that's true in, in the uk where there's lots of wind up in scotland and the demands all down south that's true in germany uh, similarly where in schleswig-holstein you'll have lots of uh, uh lots of wind and and the big challenge is that you know it's been 20 years and we've known that we need to get the electricity from these more remote areas down to the demand centers and you know the people in the middle don't want to see transmission lines so i think that that i think for example that's an example of what will be one of the big challenges of of, of unlocking uh, unlocking the kind of a net zero um, transition there's been kind of this consistent uh resistance uh to the type of you know large-scale energy infrastructure that, that that's needed Indeed, they completely agree with you. Uh, infrastructure is one of, uh, of the main bottlenecks. And, uh, for example, uh, uh, we estimate that in order to uh, exactly um, address some of the, uh, the topics you, you've said, so uh, increasing our interconnection capacity, investments, for example, in transmission will need to increase by almost 50% compared to what, uh, what has been uh, uh, done in uh, in the recent years, distribution we estimate uh, even uh, from fifty to to seventy percent with uh, increased connections on uh, on renewables. This, of course, it's uh, it's uh, an incredible challenge. Uh, first, for uh, 
the network operators, but at the same time, uh, it requires also, uh, you know, uh, the bottlenecking, uh, the permitting processes, uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, uh, having a more uh, integrated uh, planning uh, across uh, the different energy vectors. The system is more intertwined between uh, power, gas, hydrogen. Um, so indeed, uh, very important topic. If I may pile up, um, I think to, to, to David's point, I think we will always have kind of this challenge of actually convincing people that this is the right thing to do. And not always it's easy, especially when you're starting seeing some of these not in my backyard movements uh, kind of uh, uh, perspectives. I think that's one challenge that we need to address with better communication, better what we call kind of stakeholder management at the end of the day. So don't leave these people um, unattended and kind of have a, a proper uh, involvement on, on, on the discussion. And I think on the other side is um, we believe that these things are going to happen one way or the other because kind of that's where the countries have set their targets on. I think there is a timing issue. Um, and this timing issue is also connected with how profitable and how feasible economically these projects are. Uh, because in some situations, we're talking still, let's say, early stage technologies um, that are not there yet. And perhaps they need the proper push, um, either from VC investments or from uh, incentives from um, uh, things like the Green Deal in Europe um, to actually push them forward, right? If you think, for example, on solar, today we have really cheap solar because China invested for many years on, on, on the technology. And today we have it at, the, at low prices. Um, and, and that type of, of, let's say, change will be needed uh, uh, um, in some of these uh, technologies that, and, and some of these investments, as you mentioned, on either infrastructure, connecting offshore, or even uh, within lands, that will also be an important uh, part of the discussion. Thanks so much. And uh, just a reminder, you can put your questions for the panel in the chat or comments of either YouTube or LinkedIn. Tommaso, you were going to talk about um, the supply on, on, let's say, clean manufacturing value chains. Indeed. I think two, two important angles, and here we gathered some facts uh, to stimulate the thinking. If we look at the, the clean, uh, clean technology that, uh, that is needed uh, uh, to achieve the goals, uh, uh, across many of uh, the core technologies, solar, uh, wind, batteries, uh, uh, Europe's share of manufacturing uh, is, uh, is very limited. So, for example, if we take uh, uh, the solar uh, value chain, more than 85% uh, uh, is imported uh, through, through China. And of course, uh, uh, this uh, um, can pose, uh, can uh, uh, introduce uh, um, some, uh, some risks uh, of uh, uh, you know spikes uh, in uh, in prices uh, in availability and time uh, timeliness of uh, of the technology that uh, that is needed so uh we we have seen uh, we see some initial moves of uh, operators that uh, that are starting to to strengthen uh, the local european uh, uh, let's say value chain for example uh, enel in sicily is now uh, building uh, a gigafactory, a free, free gigafactory, which is one of the first uh, at, uh, at the European level. Uh, 
we also asked ourselves, okay, what uh, would be the impact and the cost uh, uh, to um, strengthen uh, the, the um, uh, European uh, local uh, local chains? This example is for solar. We believe that uh, um, the cost uh, uh, to uh, manufacture uh, uh, solar panels in uh, in Europe would be from eight to ten percent higher compared from uh, importing. Uh, uh, through through China, which uh, uh, applied uh, uh, to to the level of volumes that uh, uh, will be needed by 2030, can translate into a significant cost uh, uh, for the the overall system. Um, so indeed, uh, um, this is a very important topic and needs uh, to be addressed and is being addressed with uh, with the dedicated funding, which can. Uh, uh, and back to the uh, um, energy triangle, which can make uh, the transition uh, uh, affordable uh, ultimately for, uh, for the final customers. The second big point uh, uh, that needs to be addressed uh, specifically on uh, delivering the physical infrastructure is on labor. Uh, the demand uh, in particular for uh, blue and white colors, the example uh, you see here, uh, is specific for uh, for renewable uh, technologies uh, uh, will be massive and already today uh, we see big constraints uh, in the availability of uh, labor uh, that is needed both uh, for uh, um, renewable but also for uh, uh, for increasing grids investments in this case for example we are speaking about three times uh, in 2030 what uh, uh, is currently available uh, uh, today and this will need uh, uh, a coordinated effort between uh, uh, regulators, uh, governments, uh, uh, and operators uh, to attract and build the talent pool that uh, uh, will be uh, needed in order to, to reach to, to these levels. Of course, part, part of it uh, could, be, could come from uh, the reskilling and upskilling of uh, jobs that will be uh, lost uh, due to the phase out of uh, conventional generation, for example, old uh, uh, gas plants or uh, coal uh, that will be retired, uh, but more uh, will uh, will need to be, uh, say, found by tapping in uh, in other value pools. Um, I would go maybe uh, to. One additional point, uh, uh, which uh, we think it's uh, it's pretty relevant. Uh, if we go to the next page, please, Conrad. Uh, another topic uh, which I mentioned, uh, which we believe it's uh, it's very very important uh, to to be addressed, is on uh, land availability. Uh, we have made some simulations in order to understand. Uh, how much land uh, will be needed uh, in order to get to 2030 goals. Uh, here you find some examples for a couple of countries for both uh, uh, wind and solar. For example, if we take a country like Italy, getting to uh, the 50 gigawatts, additional gigawatts that are needed by 2030, it will require to use 60% of the land that is technically available. Of course, this number is huge and it's driven by the fact that there are limits on the kind of land that can be used. Uh, so uh, the, the conversation, it's, the topic is, uh, is of course, uh, pretty complicated. There are uh, uh, competing uh, land usages that needs to be taken into account. 
but uh, the implications are for sure that uh, uh, you know land is currently scarce and um, uh, the the governments and the local stakeholders need to um, to address uh, the the current uh, constraints and limitations for example in uh, uh, distance between uh, plants and settlements right Tommaso, it sounds like basically you were having to use tremendous amounts of uh, land just to generate power, generate energy. Um, where are we going to find all this? That's <laughs> exactly you that's uh, the land. <laughs> that's that's a very good question. Uh, the point is, if we take, for example, uh, example of Italy, and then uh, Andre is from Iberia, so I guess he can comment. Uh, uh, as well. Now, for example, agricultural land cannot be deployed uh, to build renewables uh, that can uh, participate to government uh, auctions. So the land is there. Uh, it's not. It's technically available. However, due to uh, regulatory constraints, it cannot be used. Uh, and this is one example. Uh, at the same time, uh, there is uh, a big potential also from exploiting uh, um, existing rooftops. Uh, so uh, in, in the short term, uh, and I will comment in a while uh, while looking at permitting, uh, for sure, uh, using uh, available uh, uh, rooftop areas uh, could be one way to, to address it, uh, especially for, um, for solar, of course. Mm. Yeah, but, but if I may pile up, Conrad, I think this page shows a problem that we have, which is the technical availability lens, right? If you think on the overall lens, that is, when you look at the numbers, we're talking about one to three percent of the land in a in a given country. Mm. So, if you think about it, uh, for example, I, I heard this the other day, like the the amount of space occupied by golf courses in the UK would be enough to supply the entire uh, solar panels that you would need for the UK to to do the development. Just as as a, as, as as an example, um, I think the issue that we have is one. Not always, and, and to David's point, not always the land is in the places that you need because either you don't have the connections there or you don't have the grid infrastructure there. Um, and as such, even though the land might be good, then you don't have the conditions to do it. Um, or, for example, you have more and more kind of this uh, NIMBY effect that limits some of the land that would be available um, for this. So land is a challenge, yes. But if you put on the big scheme of things, we're talking about really a small percentage of land. Um, and especially, for example, if you go to uh, regions like Iberia, we actually have a lot of land. And there is this whole notion that eventually you need to be more better connected um, across countries to actually le leverage the best resources on the offshore in Scotland and the offshore in the Nordics and the sun in, 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 in Spain and Italy, for example. Um, the more and more you do this, the more and more you will be able to kind of leverage the best resources on on uh, on each of the geographies. Mm. David, what do you what are your views on this? Uh, like, how does the how do you see the UK and other European countries tackle land use? Well, again, I th I think um, the the largest you know single subsidy program in in the EU is is with regard to agricultural. Um, subsidies. Uh, and I think that's clearly an area that will need reform. 
because I think, um, and we're already starting to hear some of these discussions with regard to uh, removals. So the, you know, the the negative side of of the um, of the equation. Um, but but it seems to me this could you know very much fit into that uh, discussion. There's lots of of land uh, that's you know, being farmed because of, of the subsidy regimes. And if we really wanted to um, mobilize more land, I think that that's, I don't know, it's easily so soluble, but, but we, you know, unlike some of these other dimensions like the, the jobs equation and retraining uh, coal miners, I think that's a lot more challenging, getting transmission lines more challenging. Uh, as 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 I think um, uh, Andre was saying, you know, the, there's lots of places like in Spain and Poland and so on where there would be kind of land available that you just need a, a subsidy regime and farmers and other landowners are used to responding to those type of changes in, in subsidy regime that would would allow them, I think, to 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 switch over fairly readily. Mm. Spoken like a true economist, David. Uh, <laughs> we have a question from Pooja who. Uh, asked about this slide here. So Pooja asks, what, why, do we, why do you feel that technicians are going to be the major pain point when it comes to labor? Thanks for the question. Um, yes, look, um, so we, uh, we estimated the, the kind of profiles that, uh, that are typically required uh, um, to uh, develop both uh, renewable capacity and, uh, and grids. Um, and uh, simply by, by looking at uh, the jobs that are needed and uh, uh, translating this into uh, the future additions uh, that we expect will be required um, by 2030, uh, the number simply explodes and multiplies, uh, as you see. And already today, uh, with uh, the massive increase of uh, infrastructural uh, investments, uh, not only um, on, uh, on the energy side, but uh, on rail, rail infrastructure, on telecommunications, the kind of uh, profiles uh, such as uh, electricians uh, or uh, um, construction workers uh, are already today scarce. And... Uh, if you, if you typically, I mean, when we speak with, uh, with our uh, uh, clients and uh, we ask them uh, what are, uh, you know, the bottlenecks in order to scale these technologies, uh, this is typically mentioned already today as one of, as, uh, one of the most, uh, let's say, uh, burning challenges uh, to, to address. Um, yeah, and I can speak uh, as a governor of a further education college here in the UK, we are trying to expand a lot of getting a lot more students into things like solar, become technicians, etc. And the bottleneck is we can't find people to train them because they're all having uh, attracted by high salaries to go and work on projects. So uh, it is going to be quite difficult. And of course, it's a long lead time to train uh, somebody in, in some of these areas. Um, so Tommaso, I think on this thing about bottlenecks, the other part is... Uh, the, that you've identified is these long lead times for uh, maybe permit approval. Indeed, that's uh, that's one of uh, the the other uh, uh, very 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 relevant uh, uh, areas. Uh, of course, these points uh, are being touched upon uh, by different pieces of regulation. But 
if we look at uh, the picture today, uh, we see uh, that on average, uh, uh, the permitting times between uh, the project start and when the, the permits are actually permitted, including grids connection, uh, uh, takes a lot of years. Uh, of course, it's more complicated uh, for uh, onshore wind technologies uh, than solar, and there are, of course, uh, uh, best practices uh, across the different countries, but also within the countries at uh, uh, the um, uh, at the level of uh, the different areas or, uh, or region. Uh, this uh, this is one of the areas uh, that, uh, uh, in my personal opinion, uh, needs to to address need, needs to be addressed with uh, with most urgency. This is the reason why, for example, uh, in a country like uh, Italy, uh, rooftop uh, um, solar panels have, uh, have had uh, a much more accelerated uh, uh, deployment uh, than uh, utility-scale uh, um, renewable plants, uh, which take a much longer uh, time uh, to, to grant the permits. And one of the... Yeah. Sorry, I was going to ask, David... Uh... You know, what's the UK experience since we are famously very slow in getting any major projects off the ground? Yeah, the problem is actually not just major projects. It's actually at the, at the more boring level of, of uh, getting grid connections. For, um, and, and, and at the moment, there's kind of a vast pipeline of uh, unmet uh, kind of grid connections that, that uh, are are kind of waiting to get onto the grid. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the big questions uh, that pretty much every country in, in Europe faces with, with regard to, um, it's not so much that there, there isn't uh, the projects, it's that the, you know, both from a permitting point of view and just that, that kind of technical ability to connect up uh, these these projects in the pipeline is is proving to already proving to be a big uh, challenge, and that probably will only grow in in the future. And I think one uh, one important point uh, to to mention is that uh, in several cases delays in permitting uh, is also caused by uh, opposition of uh, local communities. Uh, seen a, a recent survey by which. Uh, I think it was on Germany, uh, it actually um, says that, you know, 70% of the people uh, interviewed actually are in favor, of course, of renewables. Uh, however, almost 80% uh, uh, don't want them in, in their backyard. If you do ask the same question to those that actually have uh, plants within uh, their communities, uh, however, the vast majority does not encounter any problems with those. So. Uh, where I'm getting to is that, uh, you know, communicating also uh, the benefits and uh, potentially passing over some, some of the benefits of uh, these projects, like uh, uh, giving the possibility of having uh, uh, investments by the communities, uh, sharing the returns, is also a way to, uh, let's say, address this, uh, this issue. Okay. And Tommaso, you were going to talk also about the uh, design of the power market. Yes. Um, thank you, Conrad. Uh, indeed, uh, if we look at permitting, so in regulation in general, uh, the, the other important uh, side to, to look upon uh, is on uh, the, the market design rules. And 
as you might know, um, the European Commission has proposed uh, uh, an important uh, uh, proposal of, uh, of reform for the um, uh, European power market design. Uh, and uh, as I was mentioning at the beginning, the current system uh, is mostly based on uh, spot markets, uh, which were designed to, uh, let's say, dispatch uh, generation towards the lowest cost uh, uh, assets, being gas or coal, uh, based on uh, the commodity prices. Now we're going to to a level where uh, to to a world where. Uh, uh, the, the major uh, generating technologies uh, uh, don't have marginal costs. Uh, it's uh, all uh, uh, upfront investments. So we need uh, long-term markets uh, that can provide uh, price stability to, to these uh, new, uh, new technologies. It's true for uh, uh, renewables. Uh, it holds the same uh, for the flexible capacity that will be needed to integrate uh, these uh, uh, these renewables, such as uh, batteries, uh, pumped hydro, and so on. So, the, as I was saying, uh, um, this uh, this point is being addressed by um, by this piece of uh, of regulation that uh, that is being uh, discussed uh, right now and. Uh, uh, I would say one of the prides uh, of uh, the, uh, the European scheme is really to have a com common rules uh, throughout uh, uh, the different countries and one integrated energy market that can uh, uh, lower the overall uh, cost of energy for, uh, for all of the countries. Yeah, and David, do you have uh, any thoughts about this? Because I know you and the other colleagues in the Energy Policy Research Group have done a lot of work on the uh, uh, energy markets. Sure. I mean, obviously, things like these kind of one-way CFDs, kind of badly implemented policies, are, are being reformed. I mean, I think this is recognition, as we saw it during the, the crisis, that if, if there are um, generators that are making massive rents, you, you, want, you, you want to make sure that the, 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 there won't be that type of... Um, you know, kind of taking of, of, of rents during these periods. Uh, I think the, some of the critical points that they, they get to here, which I think are important, is, is that if we have a system that's more and more based around variable renewables, we need, again, going back to incentivizing the flexibility that's needed to keep the system operating, right? So you need the batteries, you need the um, low, low carbon alternative generation, uh, both short-term uh, flexibility through batteries, but also longer-term uh, uh, flexibility, um, things like maybe pumped, pumped hydro uh, on the system. And again, it, it, it's not beyond uh, the capacity of, of uh, regulators to do this, but they do need to change, right? So the, the UK and Ireland have long been leaders in terms of flexibility and, and bringing, say, batteries onto the system. Uh, Europe, continental Europe has kind of lagged behind in, in some of this, and there needs to be, uh, you know, kind of, again, further incentives to to make these projects more viable so that as we keep adding more variable renewables, we have the, the flexibility to keep 
that system that system operating. So it's kind of this is a critical part. It's kind of it's it's quite detailed. It's quite technical, but it's also critical that we have the, this is a different sort of capacity. It's not the electricians. It's the people in the regulatory agencies who have the ability to 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 come up with a policy design that will kind of make make the system fit for purpose for a net zero system. Indeed, and uh, uh, to to build uh, upon your point of flexibility, for example, we see some uh, some uh, some first examples of uh, let's say dedicated support mechanisms also uh, beyond on, on, in continental Europe. For example, uh, Italy is introducing uh, uh, right now uh, the first long-term options for uh, large-scale uh, storage, uh, exactly following this logic. You need flexible capacity. Most of it is not in the money if you look only at spot markets. So you need the dedicated long-term mechanisms to, to get uh, the, the capacity you need on the ground. And Tommaso, I think with all of what you've said, I guess the question is how is everybody going to pay for all this? I think, look, uh, getting back to, to one of the first uh, um, charts that, uh, that Andre commented, uh, if you get the sequencing uh, uh, correct, uh, so you balance uh, the speed uh, at which the energy transition uh, is happening, uh, ultimately the message is that the cost of energy will go down. And this will be uh, the effect of uh, reduced demand from uh, energy efficiency and electrification, uh, the benefits of uh, lower cost uh, of uh, power generation through renewables that typically have uh, a lower, will have a lower cost uh, compared to uh, the um, conventional alternatives, especially now with, uh, with these uh, high prices uh, that you're all aware about. So. Ultimately, uh, there is a big opportunity uh, to, to lower the cost and uh, to uh, reduce the reliance uh, and the volatility. Uh, that's, I think, uh, another very important uh, point to, to stress. Now here, um, apologies for the very complicated and full of number charts, but uh, <laughs> if we look at uh, one of the pieces so on, uh, on the uh, downstream uh, uh, technologies and on uh, the final users um, hat. Uh, we compared, uh, this is an example just for Italy, but uh, similar logic would, uh, would apply also for, for other countries. We looked at uh, three types of uh, households. The traditional one that has a mix of uh, electricity, natural gas for, uh, for heating and uh, uh, oil for, uh, for transport. And we compared it with uh, with a fully electrified uh, electrified household. Uh, the messages is that uh, if you consider uh, the 2030 view, so uh, factoring in uh, the um, the reduction uh, in the cost of electric vehicles and of uh, heat pumps that uh, that we expect, uh, you know, from economies of scale as uh, the adoption increases, the electric uh, family uh, would. Uh, uh, spend less, um, so uh, we'll spend less, reduce uh, the overall uh, uh, emission. Uh, so if you if you see the traditional household uh, would emit uh, uh, almost for uh, uh, for tons uh, 
of uh, CO2 versus less than one of a fully electrified household, you know, in a system that has a big share of uh, renewables in the mix. Uh, so ultimately, if we get it right, there's a big opportunity. Of course, there are some, uh, some uh, let's say, barriers and constraints. Uh, as of now, uh, the costs are still higher. Uh, so the uh, pathway in uh, cost decreases still uh, needs, uh, needs to happen. And at the same time, uh, converting to fully electric uh, could require uh, uh, high upfront uh, investments, uh, which of course uh, needs to be uh, tackled uh, accordingly. Uh, and these are some of the barriers, uh, uh, some of the most important barriers uh, to actually get uh, to the 2030 scenario. Thanks, Tommaso. And we're almost out of time, but wanted to quickly ask uh, our panel. So overall, are you optimistic that Europe, and I include the UK into this, would make an orderly energy transition? Uh, maybe, David, we start with you. What are your thoughts? Quick ones. Sure. I mean, it's, it's uh, <laughs> sitting in 2023, we've gone through some of the most disruptive uh, um, kind of uh, uh, events in in the history of european energy right we have covid 19 we've had um, uh, obviously the russian invasion but but also these other bubbling tensions um, on the one hand fridays for the future greta thunberg asked demanding more action and on the other the gilet jaune and and uh, efforts to uh, to kind of kind of populist backlash against these these kind of rising costs so so it's a very challenging time to be talking about orderly transition. I mean, my expectation is that this is still going to be quite, quite messy uh, for the next uh, few years. The transition, in many ways, is uh, has a lot of momentum behind it in Europe, um, but I think there are lots of uh, both at the European level and at the wider global geopolitical level that will be tensions that won't make this uh, that smooth and 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 that orderly. Mm. Andre, your, your quick thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with David. And um, I think it will be a, a, a bumpy ride, but an exciting one at the same time, because I think we're seeing many innovations and things coming up. And if we look at the last 24 months, people think that we might decelerate it. In my perspective, we've actually accelerated the energy transition. When we see countries like Germany putting more coal in the short term, but closing it sooner than in the long term. so. There are some good signs, some challenging signs, a lot of work to do, and that's kind of exciting uh, on the path ahead. And Tommaso, last, you have the last word. Thank you. I, I completely agree uh, with what has been said. Uh, I think some, uh, some reasons to be optimistic, though, are there. 2022 uh, has been a record year in terms of uh, renewable uh, capacity deployments in Europe. Uh, energy efficiency has uh, uh, and behavioral uh, um, uh, consumption ha has reduced the consumption both in uh, power and in gas. Uh, so indeed, uh, some some positive signals together with uh, you know major uh, uh, reforms that have been introduced uh, uh, this years uh, uh, make me probably a little bit more uh, optimistic. Oh, great! That's a good note to end, and thank you very much for giving us a good understanding of the magnitude of the challenge. Now, the balance sheet will continue next week. We will have Andre Lacroix, the CEO of Intertech, formerly also CEO of Euro Disney, talking about 
how to put people at the heart of your strategy. It'll be a different time than usual. It'll be Wednesday, 22nd November, 6.05 p.m. UK time. Till then, thank you very much and we'll see you next time.